Well, good morning. So this week I was talking with a couple of my friends who have each lost their mothers in recent years. Mothers who loved the Lord, and they gave me permission to tell their stories. We were discussing what we were looking forward to in the resurrection and in the new creation. And one of my friends described how his mother was of the Depression era, and he longed to see her be able to eat a full meal without conserving, without holding back, without the fear of running out, without feeling like she had to just hold it tight. He longed to see her experience the simple act of enjoying a good meal to the full. That was his hope for her in the resurrection. And my other friend described how he had always loved the sound of his mother's voice, especially her singing of hymns, and he mentioned for the beauty of the earth in particular. One of his hopes for resurrection was to hear her voice again. He missed her voice. Well, here at Cascade, we've been focusing on encountering Jesus in these last few weeks following Easter. And we started by looking at those first encounters. Mary Magdalene at the empty tomb. The disciples gathered behind closed doors when Jesus appeared among them. And then Thomas saying that he would not believe unless he could see Jesus' wounds with his own eyes, unless he could put his hand in Jesus' side where he'd been pierced with the spear. Peter and the others encountering Jesus after a night of fruitless fishing. But now we're going to look at things from another angle. We're going to jump over to the letter of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the most significant sustained passage about resurrection in the New Testament. When Mary and Peter and Thomas and all the rest encountered Jesus on that Easter day in the weeks to come, they met the resurrected Jesus. Now, this might seem obvious, but throughout history, the church has sometimes lost sight of the resurrection. It gets neglected or downplayed, sometimes even explained away even among those who affirm it, all too often what the resurrection is all about gets overly colored by the expectations and ideals of our culture, whatever culture it is. So we just heard Dan read the opening of Paul's chapter on the resurrection from 1 Corinthians, but Paul has more to say, and so we're going to walk through it. He actually has a lot to say in this chapter, more than we can cover in detail this morning, but it all comes down to two things really, why the resurrection matters and what it means. And this isn't just abstract, philosophical stuff. What we believe about the resurrection shapes our priorities. It shapes how we live now, and it shapes what we hope for in the future. And so here's, here's a spoiler. God likes creation. He likes the created world. And he likes our physical human bodies. He made them, and they're good. Yet we live in a fallen world, and our bodies decay and die. But the resurrection tells us that one day it's all going to change. And in fact, Jesus' resurrection is the promise. It's the down payment of that truth. So my favorite podcast is the Ask N.T. Wright Anything podcast. He's one of the greatest theologians alive today, but he's not just brilliant, he's really down to earth, 
and real, and I'm super excited I get to take a class from him in June because yes, I'm a theology nerd and, I'm, and it's just gonna be great. But I love the way he does, he, he just takes all kinds of questions on all kinds of topics from how to understand the creation stories of Genesis to what to make of the book of Revelation, how to share the gospel with Muslims, what to do if you feel like you're losing your faith. He covers it all. Well, the Apostle Paul was the original ask-me-anything guy in the history of the church, and that's what his letters are in the New Testament. His responses to questions from churches about the issues that they were facing. But in today's passage, he flips the script. In this case, he has a question for them. So as we heard earlier, he opens this new section of his letter by reminding them of the gospel, and he says, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and he goes on. And then he concludes that opening section of chapter 15 by saying, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. And so now he comes to his question. He says, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? He's saying, do you believe the gospel or not? Verse 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Denying the resurrection means denying the faith, denying Christianity. This isn't some minor point of theology. This isn't something you can just agree to disagree on as Christians. And yet some will tell you just that. This is foundational. This is the crux of the matter. The crux of the matter. The crux. Crux literally means cross. It's where the word crucifixion comes from. Our faith rises and falls on the crucifixion, and more than that, on the resurrection. We have to grasp the importance of this. Everything hinges on it. If Christ has not been raised, if resurrection was nothing more than an illusion, or a state of mind, or a nice story, or, or merely spiritual, and when people say it like that, they really mean it's not real. If there's no such thing as resurrection, then our faith falls apart. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. That's right. If resurrection isn't real, we're a bunch of suckers. This leads to an obvious question. Why had some of the Christians in the Corinthian church given up on resurrection? Why? So let's talk for a minute about what Corinth was like in Paul's day. Dan already told you that it was like New York crossed with Las Vegas. No, it was exactly like North Bend. You don't believe me? No, no, you don't believe me? Well, check this out. Ancient Corinth was known for their fabulous marketplace, the largest in the Roman world, and North Bend has a pretty good farmer's market. Yeah. They had a big hill in town. 
called an Acropolis, like the one in Athens, although not quite as well known. And what do we have? Mount Sai. Yeah. Okay, their hill had a temple to Aphrodite, the love goddess on top, and, and well, Mount Sai doesn't. Um, but by the time of Paul's time, the, the temple had fallen down and it was in ruins. In Corinth, all the religions of the day were practiced. There were the cults of the gods of Rome, Greece, and Egypt. And here, in the 21st century America of North Bend, in addition to all the churches, you can find plenty of psychics, meditation rooms, and spiritualities of all stripes. Corinth was 50 miles from the great city of Athens, and we're even closer to Seattle. Corinth was at a crossroads, controlling two harbors and the trade routes from Rome to Asia. We're at the crossroads of I-90 and Highway 18. And when the pass is closed, where is everyone stuck? Right here. Exit 34, actually. Corinth was also a bit of a sin city, so yeah, it was more like Las Vegas than North Bend. Okay, okay, so that's the town, but what about the church? It seems that those Christians in Corinth were extreme in every way imaginable. They were spiritually gifted and devout, but they were also taking each other to court. They were turning a blind eye to egregious sin. They were caught up in factions and infighting. It was not pretty. They were also marked by competing tendencies. Some of them were indulgent engaging in all kinds of sexual immorality, and while others of them were ascetic, super ascetic, they looked down on sex, they said it didn't matter, it shouldn't be practiced even in marriage, it was best to be avoided entirely. And then there was the speaking in tongues. Corinth was the church that was famously all about ecstatic speaking in tongues, speaking in the language of angels, it seems they called it. And their worship was a chaos of people speaking in tongues all at once, a cacophony, to the point that Paul said that if visitors were to come among them, they'd think they were a bunch of crazy people. But they saw themselves as quintessentially elite, spiritual, that they had arrived. And this was a big part of their problem. They'd gotten off course, they'd missed the point, they'd lost the plot we are not ultimately fulfilled in this life. This life isn't the end-all and be-all of existence. Our hope in Christ isn't fully realized in this life now, in these bodies. Now, to be sure, the spiritual life has broken into our reality, for God has sent his Holy Spirit to fill us and transform us, to radically change the course of our lives. But that doesn't mean we've arrived. It doesn't mean that this is all there is, that this is as good as it gets. But because those Christians in Corinth thought that they were fully spiritually complete already, that they'd arrived, this led to all sorts of problems. It led to to some of them thinking that what we do with our bodies doesn't matter because we're spiritual. And so what we do in the flesh doesn't make a difference. So go see a prostitute. It doesn't matter. Sleep with your stepmother. Really, that was an issue. It doesn't matter. On the other hand, those ascetics among them thought the opposite. They thought 
that we shouldn't indulge in any kind of bodily pleasure, whether it's sex or food and drink or anything, because it's better to be spiritual. Here's the bottom line. Their view of the body had gotten warped. And so they could say, what we do in the body doesn't matter. Indulge in anything you want. And others of them thought the body was an embarrassment. It gets tired and it gets sick. And when you eat too much, it makes funny noises. Best to transcend it. Best to be spiritual. And so the good news of our hope for the resurrection of the body got lost in the shuffle. Now, not only were the Corinthians confused in their thinking about the earthly bodies, they were confused about the resurrection body, verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish, Paul says. Wait, so, so the, the Corinthians decide to ask Paul anything, and he says they're foolish. Wow, so I guess he doesn't believe there's no such thing as a stupid question. No, no, it's not that at all. Paul's frustration with them tells us it wasn't an honest question. It was a mocking question. They were saying, huh, a resurrection body. Oh yeah, for real? Huh, doesn't sound very spiritual to me. But regardless of their attitude, Paul explains. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. The body that is sown, that is our bodies now, is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. A spiritual body. N.T. Wright, that guy I like, he helps us here because this is one of the places where it's easy to get confused or miss the point. As he says, a spiritual body means a spiritually empowered body, a real physical body empowered by the Spirit. So often we hear the word spiritual and we think mystical or magical or ethereal or unreal. That's the error of the Corinthians. Remember, God likes creation. One day he will make all things new, a new heaven and a new earth. Our ultimate hope is not for some disembodied spiritual existence in the clouds. It's resurrection from the dead. Jesus was raised bodily, and one day we will be like him. Paul puts it like this. Just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, that is Adam, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man, that is, Jesus. So let's wrap up this chapter. Paul finishes by saying, Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm, 
Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Amen? Man, he gets rolling there, doesn't he? (laughs) And it's kind of a tongue twister. I had to practice that. So I know I said that Corinth was just like North Bend, which is ridiculous. But here's something that's not ridiculous. We have a lot of the same hang-ups as those Christians Paul was writing to all those years ago. We have some of the same problems and misconceptions. And that's why the letter to the Corinthians and the rest of the New Testament is so relevant to us today. And in particular, our culture is just as confused about the body, about the physical human body as they were. And we get just as confused about the resurrection body. You know, I think our culture has a love-hate relationship with the body, the very idea of the human body, and so do a lot of us as individuals. On the one hand, we glorify the body. We pamper it, indulge it. We spend all kinds of money on lotions and potions and powders and creams. Healthcare, you know that, I just learned that healthcare accounts for 20% of our economy spending. Looking good is a huge industry. We fixate on our appearance. Sex sells. There's no doubt our bodies are a big deal. And there's a lot about being alive in our bodies that's really great, and we love it, and rightly so. But there's also a ton of negativity, justified and unjustified, associated with the body. There's frustration, dismay. There's even hatred of our bodies. We get sick. Our bodies fail us. That's obvious, but some people actively despise their bodies, and that's tragic. You know, this might seem silly, but I wish I had bigger hands. I wish I had longer fingers. There are things on the piano that I just simply cannot play. I wish I could play tenths. I cannot. I can play octaves just fine. I can almost play some of the ninths. I can get some of them, but tenths, forget it. My piano teacher, one of them, he said, your hands are built for Mozart. And I said, great. I mean, Mozart, he's fine, he's fine. But I wanted to play Brahms, and I was working through that, and Rachmaninoff, just forget it. Some of that, I just can't physically play it. I've accepted it. I've made peace with it. God made me a certain way, and it's okay. He didn't give me perfect pitch. I kind of resent that one friend of mine. And my eyesight has never been good, like never since first grade. I look forward to a resurrection body that won't need glasses. But what about perfect pitch? Will I have that? Uh, I don't know. Will I have longer fingers? Uh, I don't know. But I do know that one day God will make all things new, and the words of revelation will come true. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. I don't know who needs to hear this, but maybe it's you. The human body is good. Your body is good. You were created in the image of God. You bear the image of of the living God. Who you are, how you were made, 
specifically, particularly, is good. And yes, there's sickness, there's pain, there are defects, there are extra chromosomes, missing chromosomes, there are negative genetic predispositions, but even so, the human body is good. In fact, when when God looked upon all that he had made in creation, culminating with humanity, he said it was very good. But these bodies of ours are perishable. They don't last forever. And so our hope is for this spiritual body, the spirit-empowered body to come, resurrection. The imperishable body that does not get sick, that does not decay, that cannot die. What will that be like? Last week, Dan mentioned how Jesus' resurrected body was both like and unlike his natural earthly body. There's continuity with who we are now, with what we are now, but, there will, but we will also be changed. And what that means, nobody fully knows. It seems like we'll be recognizably ourselves, but without the infirmities, without the defects, without any kind of decay or dysfunction, it's gonna be glorious. In this life, there is no shortage of ways to be out of sync with our bodies. Countless ways to be overly obsessed with our bodies or with other people's bodies. Or disdainful or resentful of our bodies. Paul says in another place in uh, Romans 8 that the whole creation groans for God to make things new and that we eagerly await the redemption of our bodies. And so until that day, if we believe that the the resurrection of the body is real, then it means that we both value our life in the body now, but at the same time, we know that the best is yet to come. It means that we aren't to be indulgent like some of the Christians in Corinth, and our culture tells us constantly to indulge whatever appetite we might have. But neither do we need to be overly ascetic. I told you about my friends with their their hopes for resurrection and specifically their hopes for their mothers. I often think of friends of mine who have dealt with really challenging health issues, some really debilitating stuff, as well as friends who've struggled with depression and with anxiety. I'm sure you can relate. And so I find comfort and hope in the promise of resurrection, in the resurrection of the body. Let's pray. Lord God, we we marvel at this promise to us that you will make all things new. Give us eyes to see this, Lord. Give us this hope to believe in that this is not all there is, that the best is yet to come, that you will make all things new and that you will make us new. And give us peace today, even as we are embodied now, in in bodies that sometimes frustrate us and disappoint us and get sick and ultimately die. Give us peace now and hope for the future. And Jesus, we pray this in your name. Amen.